Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gitler. And this is episode 15 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Black Friday, the 13th of May. And Leon, we're talking to Ned Moorfield. That's right. Ned Moorfield runs GoCatch, uh, which actually is a company now that's competing with Uber in Sydney. and uh, Taking on the giant. That's right. And so he's going to be talking to us all about that, how he's taking on Uber and what the business model is. And after that, we're going to have a great interview with economist Stephen Kakoulis. And we're going to be talking about interest rates and whether the RBA is going to be having more interest rate cuts. A lot of debate about that Bernie phrases against it, of course. That's right, that's right. But anyway, let's first of all talk to Ned Moorfield. Ned Moorfield, a taxi booking app Go Catch is expanding into the ride sharing market and taking on uh, Uber at its own game. Tell us about it. Yeah, sure. Well, look, we uh, launched business five years ago now in 2011, and uh, the original uh, plan for the business was to take on the taxi industry and provide a, an alternative for people to have a much better experience catching taxis. So uh, we've been building up our presence in each capital city across Australia over that time, connecting passengers directly with the nearest taxi driver and uh, and bypassing the kind of incumbent taxi networks. We've built it up to have a base of 35,000 taxi drivers nationally, which is about half the total population of drivers. And uh, what we've just recently announced is that in Sydney, we've also added in a ride-sharing service into the app. So for users in Sydney now, when they open up the app, they'll see both taxi and our ride-sharing offering called GoCar, which is a similar model to what we see with Lyft and UberX and and Grab and a bunch of other equivalents around the world. Uh, It's someone driving their own personal vehicle, um, and that allows us to price it pretty substantially cheaper than a taxi. We've priced it 30% less than a taxi um, off-peak. And they're, um, they're great vehicles, great quality cars, and it's overall, you know, much better user experience. And, of course, you've expanded into Sydney because Sydney has legalised Uber. Yeah, that's right. The ACT government was the first back in October last year, and then the New South Wales government announced that they were legalising it in December. So a couple of months later, we have been able to launch our new service. So we're looking to definitely expand this out nationally. We'd love to expand it across Australia, but it will be contingent on uh, changes in uh, in laws nationally. But, uh, you know, we expect that a number of states will follow the lead of the New South Wales and ACT governments on that. Now, uh, does it operate much in the same way as Uber? Well, broadly it does, but there's some important key differences. So um, it does in the way that uh, you're getting matched to a driver driving their own personal vehicle and the payments all go through the app. So you have to provide a payment method um, before you send out a request and then what happens at the, we calculate the fare based on the time and distance and then we charge the amount off of your credit card at the end of the trip. The key differences are that we don't have surge pricing in place. Unlike Uber, which has surge pricing. Yeah, exactly. This is something we know people really dislike about the Uber service. During busy periods, you can have three, four, five times the normal base fare um, with surge pricing. We think it's bad for passengers and for drivers. And what tends to happen is people stop using the app and their work dries up for drivers during surge pricing. So we think allowing them to have more certainty over what they're going to be paying at any given time of the day or day of week uh, is going to work a lot better for passengers and drivers. In terms of pricing, how would it work if I, if I catch a, a go-car? 
as opposed to me catching an Uber? Uh, so it's based on the way it's calculated is based on the actual time that you're traveling for and the distance that you're traveling over. So our base fare is the same as Uber's base fare, um, our off-peak fare. But we have a set peak rate, which is about 45% higher than our off-peak rate. And currently that applies on Friday and Saturday evenings. And our peak rate is still priced below a, a peak taxi rate. It's uh, priced 15% below a peak taxi. Um, but for the rest of the week, it's at least 30% cheaper than a taxi um, with our base fare. Well, how would that compare to Uber in terms of Uber's surge pricing? Well, so what we say, we are broadly much cheaper than Uber because we don't have surge pricing. Whenever Uber's surging, we're much cheaper than Uber. That's really the comparison on the during those kind of surge pricing periods. Uh, but whenever Uber's not surging, we're the same price. We're, um, we've got the same base fee. But broadly, we are much cheaper than them because of the absence of surge pricing. So the peak times are what, uh, 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., Monday to Friday? They're currently 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Right. Uh, so we're really just focusing on those very busy periods on Friday and Saturday nights. Right. And it's uh, how much cheaper during off-peak periods? 30% cheaper, 30% cheaper than taxi. So, you know, and they're great cars. I mean, we've got some cars that are only a couple of years old that are very nice SUVs, um, great quality drivers. You know, you're getting a better quality vehicle and driver and a cheaper price and the whole experience is much better. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty compelling kind of offering compared with booking taxis. Well, how are you making this a more enticing prospect for drivers? Well, we charge a lower commission for drivers compared with Uber. So we're charging 15% versus Uber's 20 and, you know, this is a really important part of, you know, the need for competition in the market. We've seen in uh, various markets overseas that Uber has dropped their pricing and put up their commission and basically squeezed driver earnings. So we're here to help protect ride-sharing drivers' earnings. Um, we, With our jobs, they earn at least 10% more than uh, than an Uber trip. And uh, drivers have responded really well to that. We've been inundated with um, interest from existing ride-sharing drivers, so there certainly hasn't been an issue with uh, attracting enough interest from them. Now, Uber makes, I think they extend drivers' weekly payments. What what are yours? Are yours daily or weekly? Yes, they are daily. So that's something we've put in place for quite a while now in the taxi industry. We knew that taxi drivers like to get paid pretty quickly, so that's something we've been able to easily extend through to ride-sharing drivers as well. Right. And of course, you're looking for locals to rally behind this company. And I guess your great point of attraction would be that you're an Australian company, not an American. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, we want to provide a homegrown alternative for people that want to use a ride-sharing service. We're a 100% Australian-owned company. We were founded five years ago, two Australian founders built the business from the ground up. So that is, you know, part of what we're providing as an alternative for people. Now, um, you know, I think for some people, that's really important. Uh, for others, not so important, but that is part of the choice that we're giving people. One of the great uh, competitive advantages you might have is, uh, of course, you would have access to a whole lot of drivers through GoCatch. Would that be right? We do. And, you know, this is something that has been interesting once we've launched into the ride-sharing area is that there's a huge um, percentage of ride-sharing drivers that are either current or ex-taxi drivers. Um, a lot of taxi drivers have realized that ride-sharing actually is a great alternative for how they can earn a living. So that's certainly helped. I mean, we've already got a strong brand and awareness amongst taxi drivers of our service. So that's that's helped as well. But, you know, the like I said, a huge amount of demand across the board from drivers for a alternative service. So we're pretty happy with the response we've received there. What attracts your taxi drivers to, say, a ride-sharing service? Well, the flexibility of working hours is really the key one. I mean, this is something that the taxi industry has done a really terrible job at. I mean, you have these 
set 12-hour shifts uh, that drivers have to drive. And they're compelled to drive um, multiple shifts throughout the week. You know, they have to often there's arrangements where if you want to have the car on a Saturday night, you have to take the car on a Monday. Uh, so drivers having to drive shifts they don't even want to drive. And they have to travel across to the base to pick up the car. Um, you know, this whole 12-hour shifts results in this 3 a.m., 3 p.m. changeover time that we experience as passengers where it's you know near impossible to get a taxi. I and mean, the whole thing is crazy. It doesn't work for drivers. It doesn't work for passengers. And with ride sharing, the driver literally walks out into their driveway and jumps in their own vehicle and they're off and they're earning money from straight away um, from their first trip onwards. So it is a very compelling um, alternative for dr- taxi drivers as well. And, uh, and I suspect we're going to see increasing numbers of taxi drivers uh, taking up ride sharing as well. Now, according to Deloitte, there have been, I believe, something more than 10 million Uber X rides in Australia in the last two years. I mean, you guys are taking on a company that's worth about $62 billion. I mean, that's a bit daunting, isn't it? Uh, It doesn't daunt me. I think uh, we have seen some great validation in overseas markets that there are room for two players in uh, in this market, in the ride-sharing market. Um, Lyft is proving that in the US. Grab is proving that in Southeast Asia. Um, Ola in India, Didi Shushing in China, um, they're all very strong local competitors. So it's absolutely possible. There's absolutely room in the market. I think people want that choice. And, uh, you know, we're going to focus on running our own race here and just make sure we're delivering a great service for our users. Right. And I guess many of uh, your drivers will still keep working for Uber too, won't they? They could do both. Yeah, absolutely. We're not expecting drivers are going to choose us over Uber and they don't need to. And we're seeing plenty of drivers that will use both us and Uber to source work. And we've seen that work well again in overseas markets. So um, we don't see that being a, a barrier to our growth at all. Ned Moorfield, that sounds amazing. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, interesting concept, this business of providing uh, individual transport. Uber, of course, the cab drivers are frantic about that. As well, they might be. Their licenses value has uh, dropped by, what, something like, 30 to 40%. GoCatch has got started out as an app to uh, catch cabs. And so he's got a whole lot of cabbies in his stable uh, all crossed over to compete with Uber. Well, it makes sense because if you're not on an app now uh, as a cab driver, then you're nowhere. And now Stephen Kukoulos. Stephen Kukoulos, the RBA last week cut interest rates down to 1.75% and economists are saying it's going to go down even further. Uh, JP Morgan has tipped it could go down as low as 1%. What's your view about this? Oh, look, I think if the RBA is right, and remember that uh, a couple of days after that interest rate cut to the record low, they put out their quarterly update of the economy, so the quarterly statement on monetary policy. And in that, they had their updated forecasts for inflation and right out to the middle of 2018, so over the next two and a bit years, we are seeing the RBA forecasting inflation between one and a half and two and a half. So if we assume the midpoint around about 2%, it's at the bottom of their target range. And the risks would be that, of course, that it could be lower. There's a 50% chance it could be lower. So if the RBA is right, then yes, some of these forecasts for cash rates to continue to fall, to drop towards, you know, one and a half, one and a quarter, and even 1% could be be realistic. But I'll just note there that it is a really big if uh, those forecasts are correct. Because of course, as we saw in the March quarter, there are a series of uh, one-off events that, well, probably won't be repeated. But I mean, we are in for a protracted period of low interest rates, are we not? Oh, that, that's 
No, there's no doubt about that, that um, the pressures domestically with the economy muddling along for another couple of years, the housing market still seems to be cooling, although that will be distorted by, you know, gosh, perhaps negative gearing changes if we see those, or in fact, these very low interest rates might spark a few people to get back into the market. But I think the bottom line of all of this is that inflation will be relatively low, uh, whether it's as low as the RBA forecast remains to be seen, but it will be low. Global economic conditions remain you know, mediocre at best. Inflation pressures around the world are not yet building. Um, they're pretty well contained just at the minute. So, gosh, it'll be several years, I think, before we can be really worried about interest rate hikes really hurting our economy. Well, in fact, what we're seeing around the world is deflation. And, uh, I mean, that is going to be the... And that seems to be happening in Australia now. Well, prices are, are very, very weak. And again, I, I don't want to be caught up with this uh, incredible volatility in commodity prices because they rose massively and now they're falling massively. So um, obviously that's linked to some of the Chinese uh, speculative flows. But the bottom line is that if commodity prices remain subdued, remain low, then one of the critical elements in your inflation uh, outlook, that is the cost of you know, energy, the cost of raw materials, the cost of food and these sorts of things remains very subdued. And if that's the case, then of course you're going to have uh, consumer prices remaining low. The other element of that, even though we have had some improvement in labour market conditions around the world, uh, the US still has unemployment around about five. The Eurozone, well, it's still above 10, but it is falling. But it tells me that there's a lot of spare capacity in the labour market and that wage pressures, which are normally a precursor to higher inflation, are not there. And then if we look at our own wages numbers here in Australia, they remain near record lows as well. You know, people are lucky to be getting two, two and a quarter percent wage increases. Well, ever as that's the case, and even if productivity is only, you know, half a percent a year, you're going to get your inflation rate biased lower. The, the other issue is, I mean, how much how effective is monetary policy anyway in this area? I mean, Bernie Fraser came out to the RBA over its decision to cut interest rates. He said it's, this is no way to handle uh, growth or inflation. What's your view about this? Look, I still believe that you're better off um, trimming. When, when your inflation rate's low and your economy is muddling along or, or ambig- unambiguously weak, of course you cut interest rates, rates. You do improve the cash flow of people with debt, so households benefit, obviously, very uh, indebted household sector here in Australia. Businesses with, with debt, and most businesses do have some debt, also benefit from the cash flow effect. But the potency, I think, and this is what uh, Bernie Fraser perhaps was touching on, the potency of going two down to 1.75 isn't quite, isn't quite as extreme as if you're going from, gosh, the good old days of 8% down to 6% or something like that. So look, you still use monetary policy. It, you know, it has helped the dollar fall. So in a sense, the rate cut um, last week from the RBA was uh, implemented when the Aussie was about 77. We're now about 73 and falling away very sharply. So to the extent that it helps the export sector get a bit of a bit of a um, support, then I think it still works, but it just might not be as potent. And dare I say it, should we be looking at fiscal policy to grow the economy? And of course, I mean, you, you were talking before about commodity prices, but um, the spot iron, spot iron ore price has been falling. It was hammered by, uh, uh, it was fell on Monday, it fell by over 5%. And uh, that's going to make all the budget forecasts look uh, a bit wobbly, won't it? Oh, gosh, the budgets, uh, the ink's just, just barely dried. Um, and we've had two big developments on on the budget forecast. And this is not to have a go at Treasury. I would be hate to putting my hand on my heart and having a forecast for iron ore for the next four years, let alone the next four days. But um, look, uh, 
the big changes since the budget in the week since the budget have been the iron ore price is now about 10% lower, about $5 a tonne uh, lower than they assumed. And that's worth, over the forward estimates, about $5 billion. So that's um, not a pleasant thing. And then, of course, if the Treasury shares the RBA view on that inflation forecast that we were just talking about, then, of course, low inflation is actually uh, unhelpful for a budget, that uh, they don't get quite the revenue from PAYG tax collections going up or from GST when prices are increasing at one and a half versus two and a half. Uh, Of course, low inflation means that profit growth isn't quite as strong. So company tax receipts are not quite there. So, look, I'm not being critical of Treasury. Things have changed quite dramatically. As you touched on that iron ore price, um, I was reading that um, it's fallen by about 22% since late April when, you know, the, basically the budget numbers were being put to bed. So, you know, the, the, it's a moving feast with many moving parts, but I dare say, you know, the budget is, if anything, under downward pressure, i.e. bigger deficits than the other way around. And, uh, I mean, this is quite, this is going to be quite a, an issue. I mean, Moody's uh, came out the other week saying that uh, this would see our deficits grow more and basically suggesting this was putting our AAA rating at risk. Look, I, and I think that's, that's the critical thing. Um, the AAA rating does matter. Uh, it's not just a, sort of a pretty thing to put on, <laughs> you know, on top of the uh, economy as a symbol of how well we're doing. It does actually impact on borrowing costs. And while... The impact is, is is ambiguous. Obviously, the US got downgraded and Japan's got a low credit rating, but they've still got very low interest rates. They've also had their bond markets distorted by quantitative easing and zero interest rate policy and negative interest rates, of course, whereas you prefer to have it because it does actually flow onto some of the borrowing costs. And I note that the banks have been uh, reasonably vocal because, of course, they price their debt and their uh, borrowings against the Commonwealth threshold. And if we were to get a negative watch or let alone a downgrade from the rating agencies, then borrowing costs do creep up. And at a time when we've got you know, an economy that's you know, muddling along at best, uh, you don't want your corporate sector to be under pressure from higher borrowing costs. Uh, this, is, this is going to be quite an issue now that we're in the election campaign, isn't it? Oh, look, I think so. Uh, the rating agencies will be... You know, not wanting to enter the election campaign, I don't think. But they've got an obligation to their clients and to uh, and to the uh, capital markets to be honest and put forward their views when they arise. And um, look, it, it would be you know, dynamite if they were to come out with a negative watch or again send uh, a signal that perhaps the progress on getting that budget deficit uh, narrower more quickly and topping out on government debt earlier and more aggressively. If that comes out, then, of course, it's political dynamite. And, you know, who knows how that's going to play out when, you know, economics, as it almost always is in election campaigns, is a dominant issue. And so we can expect the AAA credit rating and uh, the issue of inflation to be quite an issue. Uh, look, I think so. And of course, we're hearing of jobs and growth. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, the things that are uh, the concern, I guess, for, for financial markets and for economists looking at the economy, it is this low inflation. Is inflation, in fact, too low? Uh, do we need to do more to sort of try to get inflation back up a little bit? Because we're saying deflation is just is just poison for an economy. And um, the other one is the budget. You know, we will have a focus on are the spending promises that will inevitably come out, are they funded? Do we have to rely on tax hikes? Are we going to be having to look at, well, things like um, superannuation tax, negative gearing tax changes, uh, or big spending cuts somewhere else? So again, the dynamics are, are really quite acute. And as I said, the election campaigns are usually focused on economics and economic policy. And I don't think this one's going to be any different. Stuart Coolis, thank you very much for your time. 
Thank you. What's your view on uh, interest rates, Leon? I really question what you can do with monetary policy. I must say I do agree with Bernie Fraser's criticisms of the RBA on this. The world has been on low interest rates for years. Japan had it for ages and it's done nothing for the economy over there. Europe has negative interest rates and it's doing nothing for the economy over there. I really question it. It's also very bad for uh, retirees. It's bad for retirees and also I think it uh, inflates the share market because certainly in Australia where you've got mandatory superannuation, self-managed super funds are chasing shares uh, and pushing the prices up. And of course, uh, the other thing low interest rates does is inflate the property market. Indeed it does, because what else are you going to do? If you can't get a good yield on a share, you're going to look at property. Anyway, now the news, Leon. Well, Gary, first of all, China's foreign reserves increased for the second month in a row. They rose by $7.089 billion to $3.22 trillion in April, and that followed a gain of $10.3 billion in March. And analysts say the trend, which should allay concerns about the Chinese currency and the state of Australia's biggest trading partner, is due to the People's Bank of China tightening controls of a country's financial borders and its efforts to keep the one stable. And it also coincides with the stronger yen euro against the US dollar, with the market speculating the Fed will hold off on another rate rise. And of course, all of this coincided with data release showing that the Chinese exports crept up higher in April after surging the most in a year in March. In one terms, exports rose 4.1% from a year before after soaring 18.7% in March, and imports slumped 5.7%, leaving a trade surplus of 2 198 billion won. Underlying all of that and causing a good deal of concern is the level of debt in China. Well, the level of debt is the black swan. The other big thing, of course, during the week, there was Greek MPs passing a controversial package of pension reforms and tax hikes. Despite mass public opposition, they bowed to credit demands and um, they're unlocking the next round of badly needed bailout funds. And these reforms will reduce Greece's highest pension payouts, merge several pension funds, increase contributions and raise taxes for those on medium and high incomes. And the austerity measures are part of a package which was demanded by the EU and IMF in exchange for a next round of an 86 billion euro bailout agreed in July. That's the third for the debt-laden country since 2010. Which means that Greece now has debt that it can probably never pay back and they'll need another bailout. So in effect, they're living free on Europe. Now to Australia and some corporate news. And the Commonwealth Bank of Australia posted a three-month statutory profit of 2.4% billion. That's just fractionally above the $2.2 billion in the same period last year, and the CBA joined the other major banks in reporting more bad loans. Loan impairment expenses rose 25% to $427 million, and that included a single large domestic exposure with a syndicate of lenders, including other Australian banks, and that exposure was likely to be the collapsed steelmaker Arium, which is now an administration which was funded by a syndicate of banks. Big problem for South Australia then. That's right. And it's also confirms that Australian banks are carrying a lot of bad debts because last week we had the same thing with uh, the ANZ and Westpac. That's true. And uh, the banks, therefore, are on the nose a bit. Now, Orica, 
the world's biggest mine explosives company, posted a, a profit of $149 million. That's down 33% on the $222 million posted in the previous corresponding period. And the big hit on Orica's bottom line was a $41 million expense related to a settlement with the Australian Tax Office. And excluding that item, though, Orica's net profit was $190 million, or 10% lower than the previous corresponding period. Part of that, Orica has slashed its interim dividend in half to $0.20.5 cents a share, down from $0.40 cents a year ago, and it's replacing its progressive dividend policy with a payout ratio policy done to reflect the cyclical nature of the sector. So it's joining companies like BHP. Declines in the resources sector and falls in global fertilizer prices have hammered the profits of agricultural chemicals company Insitec Pivot. Insitec Pivot's net profit slumped 79% to $31.5 million, and underlying profit slipped uh, 6.4% to $131.7 million, and revenues were down 4.4% to $1.5 billion. There was a $105.6 million non-cash impairment to the value of its Gibson Island fertilizer manufacturing plant, which did a lot of damage to the bottom line. Inside Act Pivot said that they, they had actually made that charge in order to become more competitive and the share market loved it and the share price went up as a result. Now, CSR profits have jumped 13% to $166 million on the back of strong construction activity and the result is the best figure since CSR divested its sugar business in 2010 and CSR attributed this to record levels of activity in residential construction markets. Total commencements for the 12 months of December 2015 was 221,000 compared to 192,000 over the same period from the year before. And trading revenue rose 14% to $2.3 billion. And frankly, Gary, with the way the housing market's going and all these uh, massive starts, they're doing really well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. One wonders, though, you know, when when that activity is going to slow down, That's as right. it must. That's right. Now, BHP Billiton isn't waiting for the commodity prices to recover to implement its growth plans. Chief Executive Andrew McKenzie spoke this week at a Bank of America Merrill Lynch mining conference in Miami, and he said BHP Billiton was targeting 70% growth, even without a significant recovery in commodity prices. And rather than making acquisitions in oil and copper, Mr. McKenzie said the company would increase copper and petroleum exploration. It would set a timetable for approving medium-term growth projects, such as the Mad Dog 2 oil project in the Gulf of Mexico and Spence Copper Mine in Chile in the next 18 months. It would increase annual copper production by 1 million tonnes through projects such as the third concentrator at its Escondida joint venture with Rio in Chile. And it would generate $3.6 billion in productivity gains by the end of the 2017 financial year. And as a result, investors loved the new strategy. And BHP Philippine shares went, uh, were best performing yesterday. They went up something like 4%. Now, uh, last week's interest rate cut took consumer sentiment, as measured by Westpac Melbourne Institute, to its highest level since January 2014. The Westpac Melbourne Institute of, Institute of Consumer Sentiment jumped 8.5% to 9.95.1 in May. But, Gary, Scott Morrison's first budget has made no headway with the public. According to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan survey, it had absolutely no impact on the public. Consumer confidence was totally flat and remained unchanged in the week ending the 8th of May. And if people felt more upbeat following the RBA's decision to cut interest rates, the budget, a few hours later, spoiled the party. I guess so, but I mean... Getting interest rates down to 1.75 isn't going to have very much effect on anything. No, no. And, uh, but, you know, the issue too is that it's a problem for the government as it now moves in, as it now runs an election campaign. But we've got a while to go yet. 
many things can change. That's right, indeed. And Shadow Treasurer Chris Bowen says the Labor government will release a mini-budget within its first three months to protect Australia's AAA rating. He says the budget update, which is usually released in December, will be brought forward to no later than October to reflect a realistic assessment of key economic parameters, in his words. And it's basically reassuring the ratings agency that the Labor government would mean business. That's right. But then they inherit the problems that uh, the, the country's got and we'll see what they can do apart from the rhetoric. That's right. At the same time, job ads on the internet and news papers fell 0.8% in April compared with March, according to the ANZ job ad series. The ANZ says the job ad series has been broadly flat now for the last six months, following a period of substantial growth in employment, which sort of really raises questions about which way unemployment's going to go, Gary. Probably stay where it is until we see where the um, election is. If the election produces reasonable optimism, then then it might start growing. But you've got the problem in Queensland where you've got the old economy still important, likely to lose a lot of jobs. You look at the coal industry, for example. That's right. Now, um, the Reserve Bank of Australia's incoming Governor Philip Lowe might be ushering in a period that could see interest rates falling to new lows. Gary, I was watching the market during the week and swaps traders are laying 70% odds that Governor Glenn Stevens will lower the benchmark rate to 1.5% before his term ends on September the 17th. And JP Morgan Chase is forecast that Lowe might have to lower rates to 1% or less. I noticed that uh, BT advisors were actually talking about uh, negative interest rates coming into Australia. That's really going to frighten a few people. That's right. Now, market speculation about another rate cut has gone into overdrive since the RBA conceded that Australia's core inflation will miss the central bank's 2 to 3% target range. And the RBA last week can cut interest rates to counter the prospect of disinflation, with core inflation coming down 1.5%, with annualised inflation plummeting to a record low of 1.55%. If you get negative interest rates is, is where you got your money in the bank and you pay the bank to keep it there, what's that going to do to the retirees? It's going to be a real issue. Now, interestingly enough, Gary, the Reserve Bank has been dragged into the election debate about negative gearing with an internal bank memo released under the Freedom of Information laws running counter to Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's warnings that Labor's proposal to ban negative gearing except for new properties would deliver a massive shock to the property market. And the memo says the RBA has expressed concern about negative gearing and the tax concession for capital gains, saying any change that discouraged negative gearing might be a good thing from a financial stability perspective. And it says a move against negative gearing would trigger a large scale of negative gear properties only if changes were not grandfathered. Now, of course, Labor's policy would grandfather its changes, meaning properties that are negatively geared would remain so until they're sold, and that would prevent a rush of sales as negative gear is offloaded homes. Now, this was dated 2014, so it was written before Labor announced a policy to wind back negative gearing and before the government pledged to continue it. Now, of course, Scott Morrison and Malcolm Turnbull are saying, well, that's just out of date. It's a problem, and it's blown the government's scare campaign on negative gearing right out of the water. Now, another alarming piece of news, Gary, is that two of Australia's biggest lenders, who, which tightened home loans to some foreigners, said have uncovered mortgages backed by questionable overseas income documentation. ANZ and Westpac identified issues with some loans that rely on foreign income for approval. Last month, they stopped new loans to offshore customers who aren't citizens or who don't hold appropriate residency visas. And they also disallowed the use of foreign income for such investors to qualify for a loan. I mean, that is quite amazing, Gary. What were the banks doing? Because some of the stuff that we've seen uh, yeah, exposed is uh, 
companies, the Chinese companies were named that didn't exist, couldn't find well, them. Well, these questionable overseas income documentation would suggest that there's a whole lot of money laundering going on, I think. Exactly right. And I think a lot of it's being done by uh, the smaller banks in China. Final bit of news is, Gary, is that the iron ore price is crashing and no one knows where it's going to hit the bottom. The commodity has plunged 5.7% to 54.99 a tonne. It's now lost 18% of its value in just over a week. Prices fell 22% since they peaked at more than $70 in April. And, of course, iron ore had surged on the back of the market, betting that China's economic stimulus and industrial reforms would create shortages of construction materials. Uh, but since then, the Chinese government's introduced trading curbs to put a lid on iron ore and as a result traders have been in retreat and of course the fall in iron ore prices will play havoc with last week's Australian budget forecasting which had iron ore at $55 a tonne it's now slipped under that and Goldman Sachs has forecast the iron ore price will fall from July to September to $45 and then drop to $40 for the fourth quarter and that's going to really hammer the budget. Bear in mind that it has been as low as $30. And that's it for this week Gary. Excellent, Leon. And, and next week, we've got a terrific interview with Kai Ingo Graves. He's the CEO of Jedox, which is a German multinational business intelligence company. It's going to be a fantastic interview. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.